Our scripture this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Caroline Billions. <clears throat> well, what we've been doing for the past few weeks is we have been uh, just working our way through what may be the most famous, well-known chapter in the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, <clears throat> which, is a, which is a chapter that's focused primarily on the subject of love. And uh, it's important to remember that these words were not written by Paul to newlyweds. Uh, he wrote these words to a church. And that already shows you that um, faith in Jesus is not a private thing. It's not, okay, I believe this stuff about Jesus, and then I just kind of wait for God to take me to heaven one day. You just already see from, the, from just the way that this is even laid out that uh, when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, it, it rearranges everything about your life. And so that your orienting disposition towards everything around you now is through a disposition of love. The way that you relate to your friends and to your family and your neighborhood and your coworkers, it's, it's, all, it's all changed because of, of faith in Christ. And um, at the end of verse 5, Paul fleshes out, okay, well, what does it look like to have a disposition of love towards somebody that has hurt you, towards somebody that has wronged you, Look at verse 5. He writes, It, meaning love, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is not resentful. And I think that's a big enough idea for us to just camp on uh, for a morning. So let's just um, try to answer three questions about this. Um, what is resentment? Uh, what is love? baby, don't hurt me. And um, how can we become people who 
love. How can we become people who don't choose resentment, but who choose the ways of love? So that's, those are the three questions I want to try to answer with you this morning. What is resentment? What is love? And how can we become people who actually do it? So first, uh, what is resentment? Uh, the, the literal, uh, if you translated what Paul wrote in Greek literally, he, he, he writes, uh, love keeps no record of wrongs. There's actually some translations, uh, English translations that put it that way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The idea is because that the word that he uses for resentment, record, is uh, it's an accounting word. It, it has to do with ledgers. Now, we don't have like ledger books anymore. We, we do it all on Excel spreadsheets and QuickBooks, but you know, a, a ledger book was a was a was a book that you would keep track of uh, financial transactions, and uh, you know, credits and debits and things like that. And 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 we used ledgers back in the day as a way to look back over the history, having a permanent record of what has happened historically, so that you know who owes you money and who, who you owe money to. And so Paul has taken that language, he's taken that imagery, and he's, he's using it to say, this is how we default into our relationships with each other. In other words, he's talking about the ways that we naturally keep score with one another, the way that we uh, keep receipts in our relationships, uh, that when someone has hurt us or wronged us, we... we file it in a mental filing cabinet, as it were. And for some of us, our, our files are pretty meticulous. And so, uh, and we're quick to pull out that filing cabinet. So we might say to somebody, I don't know if you remember, but on September 18th, 2019, at 4.43 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, while we were driving southbound to your parents' house, you were incredibly rude to me in the card, and it still hurts. You know, so we, we have a time-stamped, uh, you know, data point in our head of how people have hurt us. We have the video. And oftentimes we play the video to the person that hurt us. But really, more often than not, we just play the video on repeat in our own heads, keeping that memory alive over and over and over. And so it raises this question, okay, why in the world would anyone want to relive past pain? Why would anyone want to go there and do that? It sounds sadistic. Well, Lewis Meads, who I've uh, referred to a lot, a number of us have up here have referred to a lot over the past few weeks, because he wrote a book over this whole chapter, wrote an entire book on 1 Corinthians 13, and, and, and Meads comes to the rescue again on why we do this. Here's what he says. <clears throat> he says, quote, we remember the hurts so that we can enjoy the pain of yesterday over and over again. We keep it alive for the pleasure we can get from our resentment against the one who hurt us. And you think, okay, that sounds sick. Who would want to enjoy the pleasure of the pain that we've received from somebody? And you and I, I think, all intuitively know why we do this, but let me give you four reasons why I think we do this. The first reason I think why we do this is because uh, when we uh, feel resentment towards somebody, it makes us feel superior to them, doesn't it? We, we feel noble. We feel like we're decent and the one that have been treated uh, unjustly, 
unfairly, feels good. Um, you, you often see this played out in marriage. I mean, it plays out in lots of different ways, but, but in marriage, it might look like this, where the wife will, uh, maybe on a ride home from a party, uh, confront her husband and say, hey, tonight at that gathering, at this party, uh, you totally embarrassed me. You said that thing at my expense. You made that joke at my expense in front of everybody. It was totally out of line, totally not okay. It was totally embarrassing. Now, the husband, instead of receiving that, owning that, apologizing for that, what does he do? He goes into the files, he goes into the records, and he says, yeah, but that's nothing compared to what you said two years ago when we were at that other party. Now, why would he do this? He hasn't forgotten. He's kept a record of it. He pulls out the record, though, to let her know what the virtue score is. Just because he may have made a little mishap tonight, it doesn't mean that she's winning the game of who's the better person contest that we seem to be playing right now. He's, he's reminding her, okay, yeah, I, I may have messed up, but you've messed up way worse. Don't let this incident fool you into thinking you're the bigger victim here. I am. <clears throat> So we keep records because uh, it makes us feel superior. Here's a second reason. We keep records because uh, it's a way that we can control other people with it. If you have something on somebody, you can hold it over their head. And if they want to get back in your good graces, oh, you can make them work for it. Dance, monkey, dance. Like you, you, can, you can control them. You can make them jump through hoops. Hold it over their head. Here's a third reason, uh, because it justifies our self-pity. Often when we experience hard things, it's really easy to think and start to believe nobody has suffered to the degree that I have. And when you start to think, I am the, I'm the biggest sufferer in the room, then that entitles you to special treatment, that entitles you to, to a break. And so you can think things like, well, okay, I'm going to take an extra long lunch break today, or I'm going to take the rest of the day off because you have no idea what kind of morning I have had. So we justify our self-pity to give ourselves little excuses, little, little you know, cushions. Uh, here's the fourth reason. We hold on to our resentment because it justifies our hatred. Have you ever had a revenge fantasy? You know what I'm talking about, where you fantasize in your imagination what you wish you would have said to that person if you had just thought about it in the moment, or maybe if you had the courage to say it in the moment, but you didn't, and so you just kind of replay this scene in your head where you're chewing out your boss, or you're putting your neighbor in their, in their place. You're just paying them back. That's just this thing inside of us. It just, it's, uh, we, we keep these records because we don't want to forget how terrible of a person that they are. And oftentimes, we freely share those records with other people because we want other people to know how terrible of a person that they are because we want them to pay. Here's the point. Resentment is super hard to let go of because it just feels too good to be wronged. It feels too good to have something that you can hold over somebody else. It feels too good to feel like, okay, this gives me a free pass from having to be merciful to this person that if I'm honest, I don't want to be merciful towards. And so um, it's really hard, but here's the reality. It's really unloving. Love is not this. 
Love is not resentful. Let's just say that I invited you uh, to a meeting with me in my office. Set up, let's have a coffee appointment, meet me in my office, hang out, no agenda. I just want to get to know you, spend some time together hanging out. And let's say before you get there, I crank up the temperature to be 120 degrees, just stifling, gross, Memphis heat. And um, let's say uh, I turn on these spotlights that I had installed so that when you sit in the chair, it's just this blinding, aggressive light in your face. And let's say I went to the liberty of piping in the smell of vomit and, um, and dog food into the, into the office. And I, I, I'm, I got some background music I'm going to play. I'm playing a soundtrack. It's, it's uh, the sound of an injured cat. Now, if you were to come into this office, you would not want to hang out there very long, would you? You wouldn't stay in that room because that is not an environment that human beings are designed to thrive in. I mean, it's, it is caustic on, on almost every level. I bring that up because when we hold on to our resentments and when we act out of our resentments, we're forcing people and we're forcing relationships into courtrooms with records and receipts and DNA evidence. And relationships don't tend to do well in courtrooms. That is not the environment where relationships are really designed to thrive. Resentment, it destroys our relationships. It damages our relationships. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's the point. I don't want this relationship. That's why I'm trying to destroy it. Okay, well, think about this. Resentment doesn't just damage relationships. It also damages you. It damages your own soul. Anne Lamott has this uh, famous quote. I don't know if she's the one that came up with it or not, but it's often attributed to her, so I'm giving her credit for it. But she says this. She says, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It's an amazing image, but her point is when you hold on to your resentment, it's like you drinking poison, hoping it's gonna hurt somebody else. And her point is, it's actually just hurting you. Because what it does is it's strengthening everything in you that is ugly all that yuck inside of you. It's like watering a weed in your own soul, feeding your pride, feeding your sense of entitlement, feeding your self-righteousness, feeding your need to be right, more virtuous than other people. All of that yuck, it's just strengthening, fueling, and that's destructive to you. So if that's what, if that's what love is not, if that's resentment, that's the negative side, then what's the positive side of this? What, what does love actually look like then? positively? That's the second question I want to try to answer. When you've been hurt, when you've been wronged by somebody, what is the loving response? Well, Paul says, uh, love keeps no record of wrongs, meaning love releases its grip from the ledger. Love tears up and throws away the receipts Love lets the past die, and it doesn't demand apologies and punishments. It's not interested in getting a pound of flesh. It's not interested in playing the who's the better person game. 
when you're committed to loving somebody, your, your driving concern is no longer, let me prove to them and to myself that I'm better than them. That just goes away. In other words, when you've been hurt, when you've been wronged, love is to forgive. Love is to move towards somebody not with an impulse and an instinct uh, of law, but with an instinct of grace, an instinct to say, I I am going to release you from this. And it's not just a one-time act. It is an over and over daily commitment to that person. When every time that memory starts to bubble up in your head of the way that they've hurt you, the way that they've wronged you, rather than stewing on it, rather than ruminating on it and letting it feed this bitterness inside of you, you, you fight it and you give grace to them in your own heart. You pray for them. You seek their well-being in that moment. Now, you hear all of that and you think, okay, that sounds lovely, but that raises a bunch of questions. Let me give you two questions. Let me try to address two questions as as I think about this that kind of immediately comes to my mind. The first question is, okay, if you're just going to forgive like that, just forgive people willy-nilly, isn't that unwise? I mean, this this has been the critique in in our cultural conversation over the past few years in response to the Me Too movement and these kind of egregious uh, instances of racial injustice, even gun violence, when there's been these quick responses of forgiveness from people or from from the church, there's been this backlash of that's the problem. That quick forgiveness is perpetuating the problem. It's minimizing the the wrong that's done. It's, It's enabling abuse. So that's the question. Is forgiveness unwise? Does it enable abuse? And I would say no. Uh, for, because forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. Think about it like this. Let's say that I, um, I hired you to, to watch our kids one night. We, we have uh, Catherine and I, my wife Catherine and I, we have two kids, 12-year-old, 10-year-old. There's one of them right there. And um, let's say we hire you to come babysit our kids so that Catherine and I can go out to dinner. And, and while we're out to dinner, um, you let our children watch the movie Silence of the Lambs and feed them uh, chocolate cake and bourbon for dinner. Uh, we're not going to hire you again. You've lost your privileges to be the Howell babysitter. Now, Catherine and I would still have to do um, the hard internal work of forgiveness. Not keeping a record of your wrongs means that we're not going to punish you. We're not going to feed ill will inside of our hearts. But you think about how irresponsible and reckless would it be of us to, to immediately hire you back again and put our children in harm's way. That's not, um, that's unloving of us to just, uh, to take that level of risk. Forgiveness is not opposed to accountability. Forgiveness is not opposed to, to natural consequences. What forgiveness is opposed to is, is the resentment, the ill will, the malice that can come as a result of being wronged. Second question that starts to bubble up when you uh, start thinking about forgiveness, you think, okay, well, isn't this unfair? Isn't forgiveness unfair? They wrong you, they hurt you, and they just get to be released? They just get to walk? That seems horribly imbalanced. Uh, 
The reason why forgiveness feels so unfair is because it is. Forgiveness is by definition unfair. It is you choosing to voluntarily give up your rights for payback and for punishment. And we don't want to do that. We don't like doing that. We want fairness. We want the courtroom. This is why we keep the records. This is why we prefer having our relationships in, in, the, in the courtroom. This is, it is so, this is why this is so hard. This is, um, this is just my personal hot take here, but I think that releasing our resentments and forgiving people that have hurt us may be the hardest thing that Jesus calls us to. Maybe. Because it is, there is nothing more unnatural. It cuts against the grain of everything in you that wants to extend vengeance to somebody. And Jesus says, maybe extend them grace instead. It's so hard. And so here's the question then. How do we become people who do it? How do you become people who actually choose the ways of love instead of resentment when it is so unbelievably hard? Well, let's try to answer that last. And here's how I want to try to answer that question. Jesus once told a story, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was this servant who lived in this kingdom, and the king came up to the servant and said, hey, I was just going through my ledger, going through my, my records, and I'm trying to settle up on all of my accounts. And according to my records, oh, you owe me $400 billion. And the servant freaks out and has a meltdown because, of course, I mean, $400 billion is a lot of money. And it's way too big. There's no way he can't pay that. There's no way he could pay that off. In fact, even if he worked every day and gave all of his earnings every day for thousands of years, it still wouldn't be long enough to pay off a debt of that size. So he freaks out and he falls down and he pleads and begs for mercy. And the king looks at him and has pity on him and says, hey, we're good. Tears up the ledger book, throws it away, releases him of a $400 billion debt. So the servant has this new lease on life and he goes out into the village and he's just, you know, who knows what he's thinking. And he bumps into somebody in town who owes him 10,000 bucks, which, you know, it's a lot of money. It's, it's not nothing. I mean, it's, it's nothing compared to 400 billion, but, you know, $10,000, it's a good chunk of change. And when he sees this guy that owes him 10,000 bucks, he grabs him by the throat and strangles him. That's how Jesus tells the story. Pay me back what you owe me now. And the guy can't pay it. He doesn't have 10 grand on him. So the guy throws him in prison. When the king hears about this story, he's livid, and he brings that servant in. He goes, what are you doing? This is how you treat people after you've just received astounding mercy for your debt? Okay, if that's how you want to do life, great. Let's pull the ledger book back out. Guess what? You owe me 400 billion bucks, and I'm going to put you in prison until you pay every last penny. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> the end. Now, there's, I mean, it's an amazing story, but there's, and there's a lot going on in that story, but what is, 
What's one of the points Jesus is making? One of the main points he's making is, if you are somebody who has experienced lavish mercy, it must turn you into somebody who's a giver of mercy. And if you're not somebody who is a giver of mercy, that can only mean one of two things. One, your life is just out of sync with the grace that you have received. It just hasn't actually integrated into your heart yet, into your actual life yet. Or, number two, you've never received it. You've never tasted grace before yourself. And so how then can you sync up with grace or how can you begin to taste it and experience it yourself for the first time? Two ways. And Jesus shows you both of these ways in his little story. The first way is to see the size of the debt that you owe. This is why Jesus intentionally chooses just this insanely large number, 400 billion, it's like bazillion, gajillion. It's just, it's this astronomical, incalculable number. And he says, that's what you owe the king. That's what you owe God. When you feel the weight and the gravity of that, that has to do something to you. That has to crush you at some level. So think about it like this. Let's just say right now, you walked up here, walked up on stage, and slapped me across the face. What would happen? Few things. One, it would get real awkward real fast in here. Uh, I would fight back tears. I would feel embarrassed. Um, maybe somebody else here would come to my rescue and, and escort you out of the room and you know, send you about your day. And that, that'd be about it. That's your consequence. You got to leave. Let's say, though, you did that same action, but you did it to Mayor Strickland. Very different consequences. The police would tackle you, throw you to the ground, put you in handcuffs, take you straight to 201. You, you know, you just tried to assault the, you know, the mayor. Okay? Let's say you do the same action uh, on President Biden. Different consequences. Secret Service, my guess would not even hesitate. They'd just take you out right there. Just, you're trying to assault the president? We're, we're not asking questions. We're just going to shoot you. Massively different consequences. Same action, though. What's the deal? You take one little action, slapping somebody, and you move it up through the hierarchy of importance and authority, and the consequences get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So what happens when you slap God? What happens when you just, just spit in his face once? The ultimate authority, ultimate importance. Now you have cosmically enormous consequences. And you and I both know we don't just slap God once. We, we deny him and doubt him and disobey him and betray him over and over and over and over every day. And that record is so massive, that debt is so huge. This, this is why... Psalm 130 says, if God kept a record of sins, who could stand? I mean, if he pulled out his ledger book and said, okay, it's time to settle up, you couldn't stand. It would crush you. It's, it's too big. You could, you could never pay it off. No amount of Bible reading and feeding the poor, no amount of saying your prayers is going to be big enough to cover that debt. So you have to see the size of your debt. And then here's the second thing you have to do. 
you have to see the size of the payment that Jesus made. Let's just say you loaned me $100,000 uh, so that I, you know, we could make a down payment on a new home. You give me 100 grand. Thank you. I'll pay you back. But instead of using that towards a new home, I take it down to Tunica and blow it all on blackjack. And I come back to you and say, I've made a huge mistake. And you look at me and you say, hey, you know what, buddy? I get it. Happens. It happened to me. I've done, I've done it before. I know, I know what it's like to let it get away from you. We're, we're good. You don't have to owe me anything. Do you realize that debt didn't just get magically evaporated. You just took a $100,000 loss. You absorbed it. When you forgive somebody, you're the one that's taking the hit. When the king in Jesus' story forgives that guy a $400 billion debt, that means that the king himself just took a $400 billion loss. The gospel of grace is that God himself absorbs the debt that you and I owe. That's why Jesus had to suffer and die on a cross. What is happening in that moment? It is God himself paying the debt. He's absorbing it in, his, in himself. He does not keep a record of wrongs against us because Jesus is paying the record of wrongs for us. Forgiveness is absolutely free to the person who's receiving it, and it is absolutely immeasurably costly to the person who is giving it. You put those two things together. I see the size of the debt that I owe, and you see the size of the payment that Jesus made, where I am released, I am freed from this. You put that together, that is the only thing big enough and beautiful enough to give you the resources to become somebody who chooses to love. It's the only thing that can actually re-engineer the human heart that would make you someone who gives grace. It's only when you experience it at that level. So how does that work? Let me, let me flesh it out and then I'll stop talking. Somebody hurts you. Somebody wrongs you. Somebody offends you. You have that natural instinct well up inside of you, this vindictive, malicious, I want them to pay. I want them to suffer. I want everybody to know about it. I want to feel better about myself. I want to re keep replaying the tape. You can do that. There's nothing different about that, though, than how the rest of the world operates. That's the same impulse that's fueling outrage culture. It's the same impulse that's fueling cancel culture. There's nothing supernatural about that impulse. But let's say you stop. Let's say you have faith in Jesus and you stop and you remember what the gospel actually is. You say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, before I react to this impulse inside of me, I'm going to, let me meditate on the size of the debt that I have owed God, and you let that crush your pride. And you begin to think, okay, how in the world can I think of myself as superior to this person when I'm getting in touch with the magnitude of the debt that I'm responsible for? I can't. I can't see myself as a better, more superior person. It just, it levels the playing field. In fact, what it does as you're getting humbled by the size of your own debt, it actually starts to engender empathy in you, compassion in you for the very person who's hurt you, where you begin to think, okay, what they did was wrong. 
and they're accountable for it. But I've done that. Or uh, if I haven't done that, I certainly know I'm capable of it. I know my heart well enough to know if you, if you put me in that person's story, you put me in that person's kind of life circumstances, I get it. I probably would do the same thing. It doesn't exempt them, but it gives you compassion for them. You let the size of your debt begin to humble you. And then here's the second thing. You stop and you say, okay, let me meditate on and think about the size of the payment that Jesus made on my behalf. He released me of my debts. I owe him nothing. He let me just walk for free out of complete grace. You know what that does? That brings you into the realm of grace. It pushes you out of the courtroom where you want to live and where you want to do all your relationships, and it pushes you into this world of grace where you no longer have to be right. You no longer have to be the superior one and the one who has, the, has, you know, has all the answers and has all the records. You get to begin to start to relate to people with grace. You release them. And in fact, not just release them in such a way where you then just kind of tolerate their existence. You release them and actively pray for and seek their good. Because that's what Jesus did to you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is somebody who is forgiving the people as they are nailing nails into his body. And so I want to end with a question. The question I want to leave you with is this. <clears throat> Who do you need to forgive? What is the tape that you keep replaying over and over in your head? The gospel of grace uh, compels us to be people who love. And love is not resentful. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the magnitude of our debt and the magnitude of your grace and your costly love for us. And Father, I pray that um, the thrill of that, the joy of that, might give us such an inner, um, inner, inner, inner delight, inner resources or we might be actually be able to give the very thing that you have given us. Help us to be generous with grace, quick to forgive, slow to anger. This is not natural for us, Father. We need your help. Help me and help all of us here reconfigure our hearts. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.